How many of you met somebody new? Oh, I have to do it again next week. All right, see you meet everybody. When you talk about evangelism, we're going to do a series on evangelism. That fills the parking lot about as much. We're going to talk about a series on tithing. Um, people tend to keep away from both those. Because we make it so stressful. Every year, we'll be back in September down there for our beach baptisms. We'll have about 40 to 50 people that we baptize from here. And every year, somebody, some dude on the beach wants to get baptized. And he walks by and we make sure that they give their life to Christ and they understand what they're doing. They have a church home and we do that. But I'm reminded of a a little Baptist church down south was doing a baptism in the river. And a town drunk came stumbling up and he's standing in line thinking there was food or something. He came walking up and the pastor saw him and put him underwater and brought him up and said, did you find Jesus? And he went, no. So he told me, put him back underwater again. And Brian says, have you seen Jesus? And he said, no. And he put him back down a third time. And he brought him up and says, have you found Jesus? And he said, no. Are you sure this is where he fell in? <laughs> and most of us think that's what evangelism is. You jump him and put him under the water and move on. It is so different than the way Jesus himself shares who he is. The only thing we know about Jesus is from this book. Roughly about 55 days of the life of Christ. And I love this book. I don't worship a book. We don't believe that the Bible fell out of heaven, but that God used or didn't download an app for us word for word. But God chose to use this beautiful, elegant, messy process of eyewitnesses as the Holy Spirit motivated them to record what they had seen. And when we come and we find out, we look at the call of the first disciples, most of us think it should be like when we share Christ, Like Jesus just calls people, they drop their nets and they follow him. We're going to find out as you study that a little more, that's not what's going on. And we find out three things above all with Christ, with the way when you look at what it is to share Christ. And I believe the same Jesus from the first century is right now alive in the 21st century, trying to do the same methodology by his spirit through you and me. One, you got to give yourself permission to be who you are. You're not who you're not. Don't try to be somebody else when you're sharing Christ. Be who you are. You're the only person that God can really use in your life. Second of all, you've got to give people permission for them to be themselves. That there's a whole universe of experiences sitting there. They're not somebody to be scalped and run along. Listening is more important than talking when you're sharing Christ. And third, you've got to give God permission to be God. He's really confident in this. Have you noticed that? God believes in evangelism. Even if we don't, he thinks he can pull it off with knuckleheads like me and you, just simply being faithful. And I want to tell you, there is no life more thrilling, a little edgy, than going out and harvesting with Christ and bringing souls. I uh, Usually in the summer, I get a privilege of our Bible study. Some of us go fishing in Alaska. i got to miss it this year. And it's always fun to go fishing where it's easy to catch fish. One time, I remember I took a Bible study after high school up to the mountains, and we got snowed in. It was in the winter. We had enough food for one meal. We were there three days. We found out, we knew there was a lake, and it was frozen. We broke a hole in it, and we were fishing for trout. I want to tell you, you have a different attitude when you're fishing to stay alive than when you're fishing for sport. And Jesus says there are literally souls and lives at stake. And when you and I realize the pressure is off of us, except to let the Lord use us, it is one of the most 
thrilling lives, seriously, that you and I can ever live. Well, it's interesting that, you know, in the book of Ephesians, it says, Therefore, we are His workmanship, created unto good works which God prepared before Him. Walk in them. The word workmanship is poema. We get the word poem from it. That you and I are literally a poem of God. We have different rhyme, different cadence, different rhythm in the structure of our lives. But we need to give ourselves permission to be who we are. Now, when you look at the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they didn't call each other up and go, what are you going to do with that whole calling the first disciples thing? They wrote, because keep in mind the first hearers of the gospel were hearers, not readers. And as they reduced to writing, they have, I love how it's wonderful, they pull their own selection, their own arranging, their own statement. But we have here a harmony of the gospel. Let's read this together. No, I'm kidding. You can't read that. (laughs) This is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you'll notice uh, the arranging of this. Now, the first harmony of the gospels was by Eusebius back in the third century. He was a Greek scholar and Christian. And he arranged them together. But take a look, first of all, at Mark. Most scholars believe Mark was the first gospel. The reason why, 94% of Mark is found in the gospel of Matthew. Mark, remember, was not there. We know that John Mark was at the arrest of Christ. We know that he travels with Peter, John Mark. So it's really kind of almost the gospel of Peter, because Peter is there. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. He went a little farther. He saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Look what Matthew does with this now. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, being a good scholar as you are, you notice that Matthew left something out from Mark. Mark said who else was in the boat was the hired men. Matthew doesn't think that you need to know that. Let's see what Luke does with this. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put a little way out from the shore. He sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we worked all night long but caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats, so they began to sink. And Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. So which version is right? Luke, the only one that had a ham omelet for breakfast, he's a Gentile, the others are Jewish. 
record something. Now watch what John does with this. The next day, this is after John the Baptist baptized Jesus. John again was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus as he walked by. He exclaimed, look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the anointed. Which one is right? And the answer is yes. Well, how did I have my first date with Carolyn? Well, I recall that I saw her in the dorm and at the salad bar. I went up to her because I'm so smooth and said, rate your day one to ten, ten being the best. And she looked at me and said, I think it just became a two. That's how I remember it. But <laughs> she remembers how we first met was in a Bible study I had there. I said, I'll, get, I'll take anybody out to eat that can name everybody's name. There's about 30 people that she did. Well, which version is right? Well, of course mine is. No. Both are true. But I think mine's a lot more interesting. Matthew and Mark and Luke and John all record something together. Jesus calls the disciples more than once. Probably twice. That means that God calls you and me to use us. And when we don't follow through, he doesn't say, I'm done with you. But the hound of heaven, as the theologians call the Holy Spirit, he is relentless in pursuing, saying, not only do I love you and want to save you, I want to use you. And the same thing is true when we're sharing with others. That it takes time. Someone figured out one time it takes between seven to nine times of formally hearing the gospel before someone is truly interested. But you have to be yourself. Don't try to mimic other people. Uh, Michael Bechtel, in uh, his book, evangelism for the rest of us, thinks that, and I never thought of this, that um, the American marketplace rewards extroverts more than introverts, unless you're inventing something. That extroversion is how you make sales, how you manage things and stuff. And the church has mimicked that in making all of their evangelism programs for extroverts. Now, I am an extrovert. I am loud. I, like they say, tie my hands, I can't talk, shut my mouth, I can't think. Extroverts think out loud, always talking, talking. And you know, we don't trust introverts, because they don't talk. In fact, I sometimes said, what do introverts do? And someone said to me, I'm listening. I thought, that's weird, I never do that. But if you're an extrovert, God can use you. If you're an introvert, God can use you. You might not be comfortable talking with strangers or people, or talking with them that way. But sometimes the kindness of silence, and this is where listening is so important, God uses that in a powerful way. And just like extroverts charge themselves like a solar panel, the more surface space, the more we're charged. They like people, they get charged. Introverts drop out and recharge, plug in the battery by being alone. That's also true with the gospel. Francis of Assisi, I've never found an actual source to this, and I, so I think it's kind of a bit of a misquote. Always preach the gospel and when necessary use words. We don't have an actual saying that. He did say to his followers in one of the rules, make sure that your deeds speak as loud as your words. It's probably what he said. But you and I, you have to be you. And your purpose for being on life is not just to get ahead. 
God will get us ahead in a nanosecond that fast. Everything that we ever dreamed of when we die and stand before him or when he returns. But you and I are here. God has knelt down and said, I need to use you. And it's craziness for you to try to be somebody who you're not. You know, we're all different. It's like, remember the book, uh, John Gray, some years ago, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Some lady told me last summer she read, Women Are From Venus, Men Are Just Stupid. That's a new book coming out. But, but men and women are different in how we react and how we respond. It's also true with the gospel. And God uses both. God, you'll notice, I think what happened was John's gospel was the first. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. They go and they meet with Him. And then it says, After some days. I think they go back to their boats. Is why when and Jesus, Luke puts in, because he's fascinated about this whole net thing, about where to fish. That's why when He comes up and says, I'll make you fishers of men, they go, I never thought of that. I think I'll do that. Because they've already been prepped and ready. If you take somebody, evangelism is not where you say they pray the sinner prayer with you. That's the result of evangelism. Evangelism, if you take somebody from hating the things of God to simply being open, that's evangelism. If you take somebody who's open to actually being semi-interested, that's huge evangelism. If you take somebody from interested to actually seeking, that's it. Jesus told the disciples, remember, I am sending you to reap where you did not sow. Somebody else did the heavy work and you're just going to go pluck the fruit so that sower and reaper rejoice together. And there's some of you that are like, say, you need a sower, a grower, and a mower. Some of you are good at planting seeds in really hard soil out there. Some of you are good at nurturing it. And some of you are good at harvesting. All of us are called to be witnesses. Most people, I think, don't And what judges people is not the crazy things they believe, it's what we reject. And most people, I think, are rejecting not Jesus, but his followers. And they associate Jesus with that. And if you do nothing else but to give them an alternative to the other crazy Christians they've dealt with before, and you act halfway sane, then God will use that to have them say, well, maybe, maybe there's something to this. And so he calls us to be able to be used that way. And now you give them permission, you give yourself permission to be who you are, but you give others permission to be who they are. Don't try to associate and analyze why they believe what they believe. You simply share the gospel, the good news. Evangelism is not dependent on you at all, other than participating with God. It's his work. Remember what Jesus said to the crowd when he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and they go, gag? What are you talking about? And he says to them, no man can come to me. Don't dispute yourself unless the Father draws you. You don't talk anybody into the kingdom, and I certainly don't. It's when the Holy Spirit calls. And sometimes the Lord is calling fruit that is so ripe out there that even a chimp can bring him to Jesus. I had this experience, Pastor Chimp. I had a woman come in, I've showed it before, and she is having a problem. And I was late for a meeting, it was at... Like 5.10, I was going to have a meeting at 5.30. And she came by the office, didn't make an appointment, and said, "Uh, Pastor, I need to talk to you. And I I said, ah, kind of busy. And she said, my husband died last year, and I think he's haunting me. Went, wow. uh, (laughs) I didn't know where to go with this, but I just said to her, are you a Christian? And she said, no. I said, well, you need to become a Christian. 
So she prayed to receive Christ. And I left. She became a beacon, a deacon in our church and just a beacon of light for, and here's this woman that says, my husband is haunting me. And I go, I don't have time for this. Become a Christian. Well, that's hardly shrewd pastoring on my part. And I was late for the meeting, by the way, but it shows you. And there is fruit out there hanging in the valley and even on the west side. That is just ripe, and all God is looking for is some fellow knuckleheads to be halfway faithful, and he says, I'll take it from here. You be who you are. Let them be who they are. And they've got issues that we are really upset. Some of the fears we're afraid of being rejected. There are people who know you're a Christian, and you've never shared the gospel with them. And they were waiting all along for you to pull out the J word. And you never have, and you never have, and you never have, and they've got the idea that it's okay. When it's not okay. But what you communicate to them is, I will be your friend no matter whether you believe like me or not. But because I am your friend and I care for you, I want you to know the truth. But you make it clear to them. Because they're all afraid when you bring up Jesus, the relationship is done. And you don't be afraid of being rejected. And also we have a fear that we somehow... We don't have all the right answers. Why do children suffer? How could God be eternal before matter? How could he be totally sovereign and we be totally free? You know my response to that? I don't know. And here's the good news. You don't need to have all the answers. God isn't using answers. He's using his Holy Spirit. Now, good thinking needs to answer bad thinking. Of course, that's out there. But when someone says to you, what about that? Say, I don't know. Remember the blind man who Jesus healed on the Sabbath? He could have done it Monday morning. He deliberately did it on Saturday. And they had him before the court and they said, Is Jesus a prophet? He said, I don't know. Hey, I was blind and now I see. And when people ask me these tough questions, I tell them, I can't answer that. But what moves me is, he changed my life. He can yours. You don't have to have the answers. You have to be faithful. So we're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid of being dumb. And a lot of us are afraid of, yeah, but they know my sins. They know all my stuff going on. Who am I to share Christ with them? Because a lot of us are no different than the world. We're all in need of grace. And the answer is exactly that. It's what the early missionaries to China said. Evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where there's bread. That's all it is. You're going, you think you're a mess? Look at me. <laughs> and yet God loves me, and I know that you're hungry spiritually. So how do you get into these conversations? How do you share your faith without an argument? Well, first of all, the three questions I still think are the best that you can always share. The first question you ask people is, do you have spiritual beliefs? And everybody's got a spiritual belief. Some of them are woo, out there. You know, I believe I came, you know, from either... A daffodil or a butterfly. I don't know for sure which. And you just use the Presbyterian indeed. You just listen. You don't need to say anything. Next question you ask is, what do you think about the person of Jesus? Because everybody's fascinated with Jesus. And here's where they're expecting you to pull out the big Bible with the pop-up baptism that you can jump them. <laughs> ask them. And most people will say, well, 
you know, some of them, if you have any that have been taught, either from an Islamic background or an Orthodox Jewish side, is that he's a heretic, he's evil, he's bad. But, but most of the, even the rabbis believe, you know, he's a fascinating person. And the world certainly does. Even Thomas Jefferson, who was a deist, not a Christian, said that Jesus, when they were getting ready to form this new nation, the Continental Congress, he said Jesus was the most sublime life that ever lived, unquote. Thomas Jefferson said, if you could have a nation full of people like Jesus, we'll have a great republic. Now, he wasn't a follower in that sense. So I asked him, do you have spiritual beliefs? What do you think about the person of Jesus? And here's the real kicker. Would you want to know if you're wrong? And you'd be amazed how many people say, no. Let it be. If they said, well, of course I'd want to know if I'm wrong. Say, well, let's pray. Let's pray that the Lord shows you who he really is. God is looking for kind classy women and men by the millions. There are 7 billion people on this planet. Stunningly, 2.5 to maybe 2.7 billion are Christian. In 1800, 1 out of 100 people on this planet were a Christian. Now it's 1 out of 4. So it's unbelievable how it's exploded. But there are still 4 billion people out there that are looking for some classy woman or man to love them, to listen to them, and to tell them the good news. And it is, again, I want to keep telling you, this is God's work, not ours. So you give yourself permission to be you. I'm left-handed in some things, right-handed in others, it's not really dominant in one or the other. Right hand's probably dominant. Maybe you're an extrovert, maybe you're an introvert. We're all a little of both. Let God use you in those different times. Let them be who they are. And let God be who God is. Notice it's a team effort. Jesus calls the disciples, all four of the Gospels that we read, to him, to the twelve. And he pours his life into twelve men. And each one of them reached people nobody could. Notice that Andrew is the only one who could bring his brother Simon to Jesus. Stubborn Simon, only his brother. When his brother Andrew came and said, you got to see this guy, we think he's the Messiah. Then he listens to Andrew. Sometimes you're the last person to bring a family member to Christ because of all the baggage going on, but you can plant the seeds. By the way, don't make it harder for the next person who does. Have some integrity in your life. Sometimes you are the very person that God wants to use because of just the weird quirks that you have, that somebody else's quirks are going to line up just right. And it's his job to do the arranging. It's our job every day to simply be walking as he went. And the other thing I would tell you to remind you is, this is not a neutral playing field out there. If this Bible is right, you have an adversary. There are spiritual evil out there. Not neutrality, evil. And Satan, as well as his minions, want you to shut up. Or to go running around trying to do God's work on your power, you'll close more doors than God could ever open up. It's crazy to think that you or I need to sneak Jesus into every conversation. Like God has only us. You're not supposed to share Christ with everybody you meet. You probably never heard a pastor say that before. You and I need to be mature enough to be available. It's even crazier to think God doesn't want you to open your mouth and share with others. It's under the leading of the Spirit to do that. Satan gets us three ways. He gets us distracted. Man. We are so easily taken off course. He just does that and we go, whoop, whoop, go forning after it. What do we think our life is all about? 
This is what my life is all about. And God's saying, oh, 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 oh. I so want to use you where you're at, in the schools, in the studios, in the places you're at, in the marketplace, in the apartment complex, in that neighborhood that you're at, to love people and earn the right to be heard. But he gets us so distracted. And he also keeps us so divided. Oh, my goodness. We in the Presbyterian church, like a lot of mainline churches, are fighting over issues of sexuality, which I think there's a healthy debate about that. There are very conservative churches that are fighting over other things. I remember being at church, there was a huge split over whether pre-tribulation or post-tribulation. Was Christ going to return before the time of tribulation or after? And I always told them, vote pre-trib if God asks you. But we literally broke a fellowship over that. As opposed to talking together, it takes the whole church to reach the whole city. And discouragement is Satan's biggest tool. There's an old parable out of a colonial America of where the devil, they called him Scratch in New England, had hard economic times and so he was going to sell his tools of his trade, of wreaking havoc on the world. And so a man went over to see the Satan's workshop and there Scratch had for a hundred dollars the whip of anger. Whoever you hit with that would become so angry they would do violence in the world. And then for $200 there was a quiver full of the arrows of fear. And anybody you shot with this became paralyzed with fear. Over here was the poison of lust and greed, and when you drank it, you became so intoxicated with those things, you quit living. But then he noticed something in the corner that was an anvil and a hammer, and it had no price on it. And the man asked Satan, how much is that? He says, that's not for sale. He said, I could never do my trade without that. It was the hammer of discouragement. Nothing takes us out of the game as much as, bang, having the courage taken out of us. Sometimes of our fear, sometimes life hurts us, sometimes God so disappoints us. We try to do good things and we can't overcome sin, so we just get discouraged and we drop out of the game. And that's where the encouragement of why being together is so important. Hey, I'm going to be asking you to, this next year to take evangelism very serious. So I need you to do three things. I need you, first of all, to stay close to God. Because there's a real bullets and there's a real war out there. You stay close to God. You keep worshiping and you have your small group and you get in your scripture. This is going to be what? It's going to be a lot of fun. And then you get close to sinners. Go find some lost people. If you're only around Christians, quit that. And if you don't have any pagan friends, ask me. I got a list of them. And God cares about them. And then stay close to Christians because you need them to encourage you. It's a little church down here. It's a conservative church. They're having a debate with some of the pastors we were talking. One of their people in their church just became a Christian. He's a bartender. And half of the church wants him to quit being a bartender. But he wants to stay because he says, talk about a target-rich environment for sinners. He says, I'm pouring drinks, talking about Jesus right and left. And they're saying, but you're advocating the most destructive drug, alcohol on the planet. And so there's a big fight. He feels called to stay being a bartender. And I only asked him, do you give discounts to clergy? That's the only thing that I asked in that. So, <laughs> William Booth, who started the Salvation Army, took his son Willie one day down to, drove past the nice neighborhood down to Soho in London to the sleaziest area where all the prostitutes, where all the opium dens were. And he opened the door of a bar and the smell and the stench of 
body odor and cigarettes and alcohol came out. And they looked in at all the prostitutes and all the lower, sleazy, salty parts of London. And William Booth said to his son, he said, Willie, look around. These are our people. He was telling him, these are the people who need us. Not the nice people sitting in the pews or in the nice neighborhoods. These are the ones, and the Salvation Army was born. That is what we're called to. This is our city. These are our people. The pornographers, the drug addicts, the gangs, the secularists, the atheists, the angry people, the people that are addicted and self-centered and materialistic, and that's just the pastoral staff. These are our people. And God has called us to say, this is who, not who we imitate, but our people to come. All he's saying is, give me a little shot at this. Megan and I want to sing in our choir. She said this last week. She uh, was talking with her. She working for zoning, and she went down to the zoning office down in Santa Monica, which is really not exactly an exciting place, and the clerks were all there standing in line. And the, one of the clerks behind started humming, and he had, she said a really nice voice started humming, Oh, Lord, my God. How great thou art. She said two people, three people started singing and everybody just froze as they sang. And at the end, people started applauding. She said down in the zoning office. She said it's not a flash mob, it was flash worship right on the spot. <laughs> you know, you have, there are Christians out there, lots of them. But we all saw are so underground and undercover, we don't know that. And all God is looking for is men and women, not with all the answers, but the answer. We're willing to just be yourself. Don't apologize. Don't imitate your sin. Let them be who they are. God's big. Let God be who God is. Here, 310, before Constantine's becoming emperor and his conversion to Christianity, Rome always had a strange relationship with the church. The church was 300 years old. Sometimes they were tolerant. Very often there was brutal persecution. Under Diocletian, the rule went out that no Christian, and they call them pagans when you read it, because they don't believe in the pantheon, the gods. They just believe in this Jewish God, Jesus Carpenter. That none of the pagans could serve in the military. And in one of the campaigns in north up in Switzerland, which Helvet is what they call in the Latin, as they were gathered in one of the campaigns, ten of the centurions, the officers, were devout Christians. They were very faithful to Rome, but they were Christians. And when their CEO told them, CEO, that they had to give a pinch of incense to Caesar as Lord, they wouldn't do it. And it was in the wintertime, and they, he commanded them to take off all their clothes and to go stand in the middle of this frozen lake until they came to their senses, and they could come back and get their clothes by the fire. And these... Ten stood out there, and they started singing early Christian hymns. And they sang through the night, and as the hypothermia and the bitterness of the cold came over them, and they slowly got quieter and quieter, and one of them finally came crawling over to one of the guards who was standing there, and he said, Dying does no good, I recant. Caesar is Lord. And the guard who had been watching took his clothes, put them on this guy and he walked out without his clothes to die with the others as a Christian. If you watch somebody 
die for their faith. Martyrios is the Greek word for witness because the blood of the saints was the seeds of the church. They said, when you watch somebody die for their love of Christ, that's impressive. But when you watch somebody live for Christ, that's more impressive. You and I don't need more guilt and we don't need more courage. You know what we need? More love. If you care about this man or woman and they could have a Christless eternity and you know what God has given you and me, why would we not share? And that is the joy that he has given us. And Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of people. Let's do. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that, Lord, you have stooped down to this world and let us share in this thing called the kerygma, the proclamation, the good news. And God, forgive us for, first of all, being afraid, Lord, and forgetting why we are here, Lord. I pray, Lord, for all of my sisters and brothers, Lord, that you'd give them a freedom just to be who they are, to, Lord, to go out and love somebody, to be open to the promptings of your spirit, God. And we pray, Lord, that our friends and our family, that they would grow into a great way and that they would grow into the image of Christ. And so, Lord, we want to listen now as we come before you, and we want to pray on their behalf. In your name I pray.